You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Linda, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners why we're talking today. Sure, Mike. Uh, good to quote unquote see you again. It's been a little while. Um, I'm Linda Clark. I'm a, a lawyer at Barclay Damon. Um, I am a partner in the firm and I'm the chair of the Healthcare Controversies Group. So at our firm, we have a cross-trained group of lawyers who are both substantive healthcare lawyers, but also trained litigators with a lot of experience. Um, and so we find more and more, uh, kind of sadly, that our clients need the skills of healthcare lawyers with also strong advocacy and litigation-like skills. I was driving home from up north and I played the hour or so of the attorneys arguing in front of the Supreme Court for the Rutledge case. Was that all that they argued? Was it truly just like an hour case, the two attorneys in front of the judge? Is that all they get for these cases? That's pretty much it. And sometimes that's a lot, depending on the type of case. Yeah. All right. So I know that you're not a Supreme Court justice. You didn't become one since we last talked, did you? No, have not. Not yet. <laughs> I just have to check. I am, though, admitted to the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. In order to be a potential judge or to argue in front of them? To argue in front of them, you have to have a special admission. And uh, I had some cases that were at least climbing up through the circuit courts with the thought uh, perhaps that they might go to the Supreme Court. And so um, I went down to Washington, D.C. and got admitted so that I would be ready if and when some of my cases went in that direction. I, I just haven't had the honor yet uh, to get there. Does admitting mean like training and knowing how to do it and you have to swear you'll be on your best behavior in that? Or is it just a, a sign up process? You have to be knowledgeable about the rules of the court. Um, and then you go in, there's actually a ceremony. You have to recite your uh, allegiance to following the rules and everything else in the court. I'm going to have my kids go through that for dealing with me. They should have a ceremony in learning how to speak respectfully to their father. I'm on board with that. Having now spent, um, you know, since March home with uh, two disgruntled uh, college students who've been, you know, waylaid back at home and taken back from college. So I might very well be uh, on board with that, Mike. <laughs> We'll work on that, Linda. All right. So how much time would you think that each of the justices had to spend on this case? And I know like their staff does a lot for them and they probably brief them and things like that. But how much do you think each judge had to do? Let's say the two lawyers are in front of them for like an hour. Do you think they've got like three hours pre-work that they've got to do, and then they've got another five hours post-work and writing up this stuff? Or is it a ton more than that? Or is it less than that? As far as physical time, where that actual judge, not counting his staff, but the actual judge is thinking about this case? Sure. And uh, as you noted, there's a lot of legwork that goes on. Um, there are, you know, levels of clerks that, um, that would do the, the research and review all the briefs. And um, then there's, uh, as I understand it, um, since I've never been personally involved in the process, there's a fair amount of uh, discourse that goes on at the court internally and a lot of debate even within each justice's staff regarding 
um, the pros and cons and uh, what should happen. So um, there's a very vigorous process that occurs at all of those levels. And ultimately, you have um, one justice who's going to write the opinion for the court. In this case, it was um, Justice Sotomayor who wrote the uh, opinion for the court. And then there was a concurring opinion um, from Justice Thomas. So if you are the, the judge writing the decision, the thinking is that that judge might, uh, along with their staff, end up spending um, you know, more time actually writing the decision. I think much depends upon um, the extent to which there is a uniform opinion um, as opposed to a split opinion. To, to give you an example, not to get too far off topic, but it's, it's relevant here, you know, we had in New York that new Supreme Court decision where the court ruled on um, New York State's uh, limitations with respect to houses of worship. And the court struck down New York's highly restrictive rules on houses of worship. And there were, there were so many opinions in that case. Um, it was very complex. They went in a lot of directions on a, on a lot of different levels. Um, and so you can imagine in those cases, there's a lot more horsepower and work going into all of those different justices establishing their different views and opinions. In this case, because it's essentially unanimous except for the concurrence of Justice Thomas, which has a little bit of a different nuance that he charted out in the decision, um, you would think that uh, you know, this is really not uh, a highly controversial opinion, which is great news for pharmacies. Right. It means that it means that there's – well, I ain't no attorney, but I'm just thinking that it means that if cases come back there that might be similar, it's like, hey, this wasn't even close, so let's not bring a nuance to the court that might have a little bit different ruling. This thing was so lopsided that it seems like most things will go that way. Is that why it's important to have a – well, why would it, why is it important to have, or is it important to have a consensus? Well, I, I think that um, in a situation like this, when you have a very strong, mostly unified um, position of the court, it doesn't leave that many cracks um, for uh, you know another situation to come up like this one. We can talk a little bit about the facts of this case, but it you know the door's pretty much closed uh, on this type of issue. And I don't see a lot of cracks there for pharmacy benefit managers to come back and uh, and re-argue and try and get a different decision. If there was cracks, they might not be able to come back on the exact same thing, but they could come back on something close. And they could say, look, this is different enough because of, of these little minor reasons, and they might get another chance to be in front of the court. That's right. For example, if there were procedural issues here, right, that were not common to all cases that were similarly situated. We saw that in the other case that I just mentioned with the, um, with the New York law regarding the, the COVID restrictions. Um, if there's procedural issues, then, you know, maybe it's not really a decision on the merits. Maybe it's not going to have that kind of, you know, controlling impact on the justice system um, across the country, at least in the, in the federal um, justice system. And, and here we don't have that. This is a, a pretty straightforward a uh, slam dunk kind of opinion that really sets the rules of the road. Procedure would be like, well, everybody knows that the PBMs are really good people, but this only got beat because, you know, the, they forgot to do something or this or that. Th those things might have been close and they might have been then retried or just with a little bit different flavor to it. 
Right, or if the case wasn't ripe, if it had somehow become irrelevant or mooted out, right? Um, that, that could be a situation where the court doesn't necessarily get to a, a substantive decision. The justices probably read a lot about this before. Their questions seem very intelligent. So they probably read a lot about this before the case. Yes. I mean, you can assume that they have each become experts and masters of the subject matter area, um, especially if they're asking questions. Those questions were very pointed, um, very sophisticated. And the reason for that is this, this decision is very important to pharmacy, right? But it also has a lot of implications more generally uh, for the body of laws that we call ERISA, right? Um, and so the court is very protective of um, its jurisprudence when it comes to the scope of ERISA. And I'm sure it was very careful in analyzing and scrutinizing um, how this decision uh, might impact the rest of that body of law. They had to learn the rules of basically two families. You know, they just couldn't say, well, this is okay here. It's like, no way. You have to know all the ERISA laws too. That's right. So if you look at all the cases that are cited, so this is a case that cites cases. We call those precedents, right? And all the cases that are discussed and agonized over in the decision are other ERISA cases, but they're really not necessarily pharmacy benefit manager cases. Um, there are cases that deal with other similar ERISA issues in other contexts. So, um, you know, I think the court took this opportunity in this particular case um, to lay down some guidance and some rules of the road for how um, these kinds of issues should be handled. And I think that the, the takeaway is, is really kind of uh, straightforward and common sense. Um, just because you work for, you're contracted with ERISA entities, um, doesn't mean that you are going to be protected with respect to all aspects of your business practices and that states are going uh, to be allowed to manage um, and um, legislate around the edges. I know you're smarter than any of those justices up there. I know they get up. <laughs> oh, no. They just get up there through dirty deals and nepotism, I'm sure. But let's say you didn't know pharmacy and you didn't know ERISA. How long would it have taken you personally, do you think, to know the stuff that they knew? Because they didn't have aides talking in their earpieces or something. They came up with these questions unless they knew those questions ahead of time. Could that have been? I, I think that's very, very likely that by the time you get through this process of vetting that, that we've already discussed in the analysis and everything that goes on before the oral argument, those justices are fully prepared. They know exactly um, the areas of concern that they each have. That's going to be a function of, of their uh, history and experience in ERISA cases generally. They would have all had very broad exposure to ERISA issues all the way through their, very likely through their jurisprudence uh, careers. It's a notion that's very, you know, familiar generally to lawyers, as is the central issue here of preemption, right? We're not going to let states, in, you know, get into an area that is really federal government territory. That's the principle. They don't get the oral arguments before the attorneys argue, right? In other words, it's not like they're deposed. What are they going to bring before the judge? That is new slants they could bring in on it, right? 
absolutely. Every lawyer that handles appeals, including me, um, has been a little blindsided and maybe surprised at a fastball coming uh, from a direction that you didn't expect. And, uh, you know, there were there was a lot of pontificating about what the oral argument here meant. Some people felt that the oral argument uh, suggested that the pharmacies might lose this case. I didn't think that. I, I came away from the oral argument feeling pretty positive. But, uh, you know, you can really read a lot into questions. And often the questions that you hear are really uh, people testing the logic of, of the attorneys. A little bit of a devil's advocate, you know. Just because I have to ask a tough question doesn't mean that's what I'm thinking. It might be that I just want to flesh out an issue. When I heard those oral arguments from the PBMs, I got a little bit nervous because we've we've all made PBMs out to be the monster, you know, and when they talk, they fire comes out of their mouth because they're the dragon that is just the low life of the earth coming out from their caves and so on. So even hearing the PBMs talk, I get a little bit nervous because they sounded, I know they're just attorneys for them, but you know, I mean, they sounded legitimate. It's kind of like the last election, you know, both sides made both sides out to be below any IQ and they come out and when either side sounds okay, you get a little bit nervous. So Linda, if you had to get up there, how long would you have had to prepare it if you had to sit up there as one of the justices? Would that have taken you, with all your history, would that have taken you a couple hours? Would it have taken you 20 hours? How long would you have read to get ready to be a judge on that court that day? Sure. So that depends upon my background and experience, right? So if I was a prosecutor, for example, um, in my uh, in my professional life and I ended up on the court, it, it would be tough slogging, right? It would take me a long, long time to become proficient, um, much less an, an expert in the area of ERISA law. However, a lot of the judges come out of sophisticated circuit courts that deal with ERISA every day. For those judges, that would be a light lift. Um, so I think it, it probably depended uh, from justice to justice. It could have been as short as a few hours reading through things. Uh, I think probably a little bit more than that. Um, but they all have memos, you know, from the, their staff, right, from all the, the most brilliant lawyers in the whole country come together and, and work for these justices in, in the Supreme Court. And so they would be presented with summary memos that would cut down the, the legwork. Um, but uh, depending on the justice and their background, we're talking about a lot of work. In their schedule, they do this. They're not hearing cases 40 hours a week. That's right. They have a lot of time set aside for preparation. And then, of course, they have to write. Um, the writing of a decision is, is an art form um, at this level. The court could have said, Price and ERISA are so far apart that, yes, we'll let Price go through. But you mentioned there's other issues that pharmacies might have, states might have, that might be closer to ERISA. What are some other issues that might come up besides Price? I don't even know what the hell ERISA is. I know it's something to do about federal structure rules, right? Right. It has to do with the federal body of laws called the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And essentially, that's a body of laws that provides uniform rules for all kinds of retirement plans. Let's think about it that way. It's a body of federal rules that determine how retirement plans can function. And in exchange for that, the plans being held, the retirement plans being held to this federal standard, the other side of that 
is Congress has said, if you follow the federal rules, you're going to be immune from overlapping state rules. Okay, we're not going to have you regulated by the federal government in such great detail and then subject you to state law regulation that might be different. So it was a decent argument because I know at one point the PBMs were saying, well, now we have to have 50 different rules that we've got to follow instead of the federal ones. And the ruling must have said something like, well, price isn't really a part of that. And that's why price can be notched out. My guess is that there weren't a lot of pricing rules in ERISA. If there were, then there would have been a conflict between the pricing rules of ERISA and the the state pricing rules. Right. And so you had the um, pharmacy benefit managers that through PCMA, right, their association, saying that the regulation of the mechanics of price here was so intertwined and overlapping with their ability to perform their administrative functions as a basically as a plan administrator that you couldn't you know you couldn't separate those out and the state shouldn't be able to to touch that area of pricing it's too far into the guts and the mechanics of the plan in and the PBM and that shouldn't be allowed so what I was saying is that you know we have to look at each area of reforms that have been enacted um, we have, for example, an any willing provider law in Texas. So if you have an any willing provider law, it's an open network. Any provider, uh, you know, ostensibly that meets basically requirements can be in the network in, in Texas. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it. Op- open playing field. And uh, Texas had been really unwilling to enforce that law because there was a concern that it would end up being preempted and challenged and it might not pass muster on, with the Supreme Court and the other intervening courts. Um, and so now we need to look at, well, what is this decision, the way it's written, what does it mean for that kind of law and any willing provider law? Uh, what does this decision mean for uh, GER fees, right, and DIR fees? We, I think everybody listening to your show is going to know what those are, right? <laughs> this sort of retroactive clawing back of, of what you thought you got as a, as a pharmacy uh, on a transaction. Um, what does Rutledge mean for those those kinds of what are really pricing decisions? I'm, ho- I'm hopeful, I think, that Rutledge means that states can say no DIR or GER fees anymore. Um, I don't really see the difference between um, this uh, below cost pricing problem, right, that was remedied by Arkansas um, and some of the other states that are trying to eliminate retroactive clawbacks, same same kind of impact. So um, I'm hopeful those are states that will have robust uh, pharmacy protection laws and reform laws that will create an even playing field for pharmacies. That's why that's why this is such a big deal. Am I hearing you right though that ERISA didn't touch on many of these pricing things? Not in a way that was controlling. So um, there is nothing in ERISA or in the ERISA rules that uh, would would give the pharmacy benefit managers protection to do anything they want on pricing. How close would ERISA have come to talking about, could it be this? Is it that ERISA never even mentioned these things and that's why this the Rutledge won? Or was it truly a, a fight? I'm guessing that ERISA really never mentioned a lot of this stuff. You know, it, it really didn't. And, um, you know, of course, the law doesn't mention ERISA, right? 
But the standard is whether or not the state law, right, the law that you're analyzing, in this case, Arkansas, could be Texas, could be New York, whether or not that state law governs a central matter of plan administration or interferes with nationally uniform plan administration. So that's really the standard, is, is the issue that's being uh, controlled by the state law so central uh, to the governance of a plan that it interferes with the administration of ERISA. So like if ERISA came out and said, we're able to sell below cost and we're able to have this and that, and the states wanted to do that too, that would have been probably more of a problem. There you're hitting up law against law, right? That's why I'm saying Rutledge is a good guidepost, but um, I think the states are probably going to have to look at Rutledge and draw some lines and uh, determine um, to what extent they can um, regulate the PBMs and their behavior. And that'll have to be an issue by issue basis. For example, I'm sure everybody listening right now would love to know if Rutledge allows the states to curb unfair auditing practices. We're seeing all kinds of super aggressive uh, pharmacy benefit manager behavior with respect to how audits are conducted. Um, we're seeing terminations like a hair trigger um, for things that are that would have in the past been considered relatively minor. Very small inventory shortages, the aberrant quantities list with the PBMs issuing um, quotas that can't be exceeded for for certain drugs, and boy, you, you nudge over that somehow. If your math's you know, a little off or you have a different view of it, boom, you're gone. Um, and so I'd like to see the states tackle that issue of uh, how the PBMs are dealing with those audits because an audit sounds very innocuous, but when it turns into 100% withhold and a termination, that's really where the rubber meets the road in a lot of these situations. Well, and the reason they can terminate so easily, too, is because of their vertical integration that they own their own pharmacies, right? And so if I'm a PBM and if I've got one of my pharmacies within 10 miles of a pharmacy, I'm more likely to boot that pharmacy out of the network, but I may not if the pharmacy is out 50 miles from one of my vertically integrated chains, then I might cut on quite a bit of slack. That's exactly what the problem is. There's those conflicts of interest um, that can drive who stays in the network and who, do, and who doesn't. And that's a very significant issue. One of the things that you might see here is the states going out and uh, passing anti-kickback type of legislation, uh, preventing self-referral of patients within that integrated network, creating those open networks so patients have a right to go to any pharmacy that they want to go to. And they can't be limited to the pharmacies that are in the, the PBM network or, in, as you say, in the integrated world, in the insurer network. This is the second time we've spoken. And so I'm picturing years down the road that we do this a couple more times and you hear that I die. And then like in the year, let's say I die in 2023, I'll give myself a few years. And then in 2059, you come to my gravesite and you say, hey, Mike, we did it. We passed something for Michigan. It seems like it would go that slowly to have all these states and everybody has to make these fights and stuff. Or is there a point where the state says, look, 
just Rutledge has been heard and this law has changed, but they say to the PBM when they're sitting down at the table to sign this, they say, don't even try it. Don't go there. You know that this will get beat in the Supreme Court or because this some other state has won this and stuff. Does everything have to get rewritten? Does this take years and years and years? Or do you say, hey, don't go there. Rutledge already talked about that. We're not signing that. Next question. Well, Mike, even with the 2023 scenario, <laughs> the very sad face here when you're talking about all that, but um, even on the, it, within the next few years, I think this is going to have a, a, an immediate impact. And I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, we have states with these reform laws on the books that just aren't being heartily enforced because no one knew what was going to happen with Rutledge. So boom, right off the bat, we can get some enforcement of the existing laws. The other thing we need is a private cause of action, okay, associated with these laws. Sounds very complicated, but it's not. Some of these laws in these states um, that have been passed to manage PBM practices, um, the PBMs have been successful in making an argument that the state governments failed to create rights so the pharmacies can wield those laws. Um, and so we have to get the right legislation to make sure that the pharmacies have the standing to enforce those laws. That's a big problem in a lot of states that are not explicit. If the law doesn't come out and say, here's the law, right? You can't have uh, GER fees, right? Let's say that's it. Um, and pharmacists can go to court and enforce this law. If it doesn't have that bell's the bell and whistle there uh, for enforcement, some of the courts have said that pharmacists don't get to enforce that law. It's just a regulation that the state can enforce. Um, I think that's wrong. I don't agree with that, but that is a position that some courts have taken. So that's one thing we can do pretty quick is get uh, these legislatures through the model legislation that exists nationally right now. We have these model laws that are ready to go. Make sure that there is a, um, a private right, legal right, uh, for the pharmacies to enforce these laws. Um, I think that's, that's absolutely critical here. The other thing is that we have laws. We have the New York law, for example. We have a great PBM reform law where I'm at right now in New York, but the governor vetoed it because he wanted to see what Rutledge was going to do. So these states that have been on the fence holding their laws, waiting to see what happened with Rutledge, which was frankly delayed because of COVID, they need to jump on it now uh, because what I'm seeing, Mike, is a, a purge of pharmacies um, within the PBM networks right now. We're seeing so many terminations, and if states do, don't do something quickly, you're going to have such a curtailment of these networks um, because of uh, some of these practices that we're talking about that m many of us that are dealing uh, with these issues, we're very concerned about uh, the survival of uh, independent pharmacies in these PBM managed networks. That's not a mandate to pharmacies to do something, to have an individual pharmacy rule like we want to be in every plan or our pharmacy's rule is that we don't sell below cost or something. You're saying, though, that the pharmacy regulations for the state should be in place because the state could mandate that, but unless it's in the state's regulations and there's friction, desired friction, to do something opposite of what the PBMs were doing, if there's not a rule, there's nothing that they can point back to to say, look, this rule is in conflict and therefore 
there is a true circumstance. Is that, do I have that even close or not? Well, you're right. If there's not a state law that pushes back, as you say, the friction, right? If there's not a state law that pushes back against the, the contract of the PBMs, you know, that giant, you know, enormous brick that you probably have somewhere in your office there, right? Um, if you don't have a law protecting pharmacies from those, um, those contracts, those overreaching contracts, then the contracts are going to control. So each of the states needs to uh, come forward and create these uh, pharmacy benefit manager reform rules that will establish what the limits are of, of what they can do within that state. And that's where you're saying that some states have said, well, we're not going to have these laws if we can't enforce them, but they've got to do it now because they may be enforceable. That's right. Um, the other thing that can happen is on the federal level. You know, we've seen some um, recent changes on the federal side in terms of price transparency. Ultimately, that may be the key to the whole thing, cracking open um, how it is that the pharmacy benefit managers and the middlemen are getting such a big piece of the drug spend in this country, uh, but that has been very opaque in the past. There's been some effort to do more about that in the federal plans, the Medicare plans, Medicaid plans, um, but ultimately, um, until there's some action by the federal government uniformly on those kinds of issues, especially for Medicare and Medicaid, um, it's going to be difficult, difficult to manage that from just the federal side. So you need this sort of marriage of the federal law and the state law to come together, take a look at what's happened here with the middlemen um, you know, competing with the pharmacies that are in their networks, which is such a, a startling thing, right? Um, and come up with uh, a, a set of rules that will have a, uh, that will create an even playing field and have uh, vibrant competition that will improve drug pricing for everyone along with patient choice. And let the, the PBMs and their networks um, compete on their merits. Does this really change anything? I mean, can't the PBMs, just like when the government told them to clean up their rebates and then they started just calling them fees instead. Give me an example, Linda, of something that really could change with this as it is now. And let's just say Arkansas. What did Arkansas want to do and what can they do now? Sure. So I think one of the laws um, that's related to the Arkansas law that uh, pharmacists would like to see is a basic law that says after the point of sale, when the person, they come in, they get the drug, it's adjudicated online, right? It's paid for. The person leaves with the product. After the point of sale, there can be no retroactive clawback of that purchase price. That is something that I would hope and I would think would be entirely permissible under the current, under the Rutledge decision. Okay, but you would think that's black and white. Here's the problem. So the PBM say, all right, instead of screwing you seven months later, we'll screw you now. We're going to pay you this for it. We're going to make you lose 20% up front instead of trying to hide it later in the DIRs. Well, then you would, then you would run afoul, right, of Rutledge and the, and the below-cost pricing problem. So there's no below-cost pricing. Well, you could have a law that... I think under Rutledge, you could have a law that clearly spells that out. Rutledge is a little bit more complicated. It has to do with Mac appeals and, you know, some other pricing complexities. But you, it looks to me like you could go that route. 
and you could say you can't you can't reimburse pharmacies for less than they're paying for the product. Again, it's startling that we even have to wonder about that, right? So let me press a little bit further. You can't screw them later. You can't screw them now, but we can give you zero, let's say. Let's say they give nothing. Can you have laws, state laws, for minimum reimbursement? Sure. I think that's exactly what um, what happened in Arkansas. It sets uh, sort of a minimum threshold for reasonable reimbursement, right? You also have Medicare laws that say that in the Medicare plan, you have to have meaningful reimbursement for drugs and services. Um, and so there's there's some other standards to... Um, that you can rely upon in the state and federal programs. I think my big question is, where are the plans here? Why haven't the plans themselves um, gotten involved and managed their pharmacy benefit managers better and and established these basic parameters that uh, the pharmacies in their network need to have meaningful reimbursement? The plans being the insurances who have hired the PBMs. That's right. And what we're seeing is that because of the publicity and really the uproar over the role of the, the quote-unquote middlemen here, right? We've heard it from the White House now. Certainly, uh, there's definitely support uh, congressionally to look at this issue. What you have, I think, is a trend toward alternative models of uh, PBMs, what some people call transparent PBMs, right? You have in New York a situation where the whole Medicaid program, right, multi-billion dollar spend, is, um, is now pivoting um, back toward fee-for-service for, for exact, exactly this reason. Because in the managed care scenario, um, there was just such a big chunk being taken out um, that wasn't making its way to the providers and the pharmacies. So states going back to fee-for-service pricing. Now, are those prices going to be great? I don't know. You know, I'm, we're optimistic, but it's hard to say exactly what that'll look like. But maybe what we'll see is sort of a retraction away from the trend of going with a pharmacy benefit manager. Um, and as the cost of that relationship, anything goes. You know, when the plans throw up the ball and give it to the pharmacy benefit managers without any sort of uh, boundaries, this is the kind of thing that happens. Most of the listeners know this. There's brand names out there that are 500 bucks and the same company has a generic for 100 but everybody keeps their mouth shut because they want that $500 into the system so that the plans and the PBMs and the manufacturers and so on can and maybe even some kickbacks I know there those are not legal necessarily but there might be kickbacks along the way to different players in there too That's right and you know there's also a provision of the ERISA law um, that really allows the plans and the pharmacy benefit managers to have uh, pharmacies that compete within their same network, right? There could be changes on that level uh, that the president has talked about in the past, um, taking away that loophole that allows for that, that competition uh, of pharmacies associated with the plan competing in the same network that they regulate. I mean, that could be remedied too. The elimination of the provisions of ERISA that allow benefit managers to compete in the same networks that they manage. That is the fundamental problem here. Try to think about another situation 
where a plan manager, right, somebody with that kind of fiduciary duty or, you know, legal responsibility also is is in the mix competing with the other providers in the network. It's a pretty unusual and startling scenario, and that is at the heart of the problem. I question why should uh, pharmacy benefit managers be able to own pharmacies that they regulate? And then if they don't own a chain store right there, they've taken away the, in quotes, the specialty pharmacy, which is sometimes another name for the expensive ones that might somehow have more rebates or a higher profit margin or something like that. That's exactly right. And uh, that's controversial in and of itself. Many states like New York don't even recognize, quote unquote, you know, specialty pharmacy. Um, And when, for example, there was a move afoot in New York to take all of the specialty drugs, quote unquote, and make them mandatory mail order. Um, You can imagine how devastating that would be to the marketplace for community and independent pharmacies. And we represented the pharmacist society in that case, and we got an injunction, went to state court and got an injunction to prevent that from happening. And ultimately, uh, the effort was scuttled, and there's now uh, basically Medicaid patients can go to any pharmacy in the network. They don't have to be relegated to mandatory mail order. But that's there's a good example of a state reform bill that has been very, very important. Um, otherwise, you would have New York's entire Medicaid spend going mandatory mail order. And you know what that means. That means generally to the PBM, the enormous PBM mail order houses. We have a big plan in town that's giving Medicare rebates on co-pays. I, I didn't even think that was legal, but they get around things somehow, it seems. That's a podcast in and of itself, which I'd love to do, is the intricacies of, um, of rebates and co-pay assistance plans and, and how those are viewed. That's a fascinating area. We'll plan another one because I don't even understand that thing about, I read it, but it went over my head about the co-pay accumulation, you know, and I know we really made out well on that because a couple of my daughters have um, arthritis. And so we were able to apply those co-pays right away to the deductible uh-huh. and things like that. Here's the other way these plans screw you. Small potatoes, but it, it screws us where I've got to have a certain amount of help at my pharmacy one, so I don't have to do very much. But two, is so, <laughs> so we give a certain quality to the customer, right? You want to have the phone answered by a certain ring, and you want to have this and smiles and go to the counter and only, you know, have them next in line and all this stuff. You force a person, though, or highly incentivize them to go to a pharmacy owned by the chain in your city, which is a few miles away. It's like a socialist country. They get treated like junk because they're held captive. And that pharmacy can save more money than I can on their help because they don't have to pay for the amount of person hours in their store at the time because they don't need as many. If they have one or two in there, just enough to get the medicine to the person eventually, that's good enough. So there's a lot of things that go sour when you don't have the competition. That's for sure. You know, one of the things I want to mention, you know, where does this leave us and what do we do now? This has been a a great uh, experiment, even for me, right, to look at Rutledge and test all the different ways it could go. It's going to be very interesting weeks and months ahead. But I have to tell you, back to the termination scenario right now, this uh, last gasp of uh, very large numbers of pharmacy terminations that we're seeing and other lawyers are, are reporting, 
um, just as Rutledge is coming out and it's going to take some time to implement, is concerning. Uh, I would advocate at this point for a moratorium on uh, pharmacy terminations and withholds while uh, Rutledge is digested um, and, and implemented by the states. Uh, because uh, I'm very concerned about the, the next six months, what will happen while the pharmacy benefit managers are now know that Rutledge didn't go their way. There could be a strategy now, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, you know, <laughs> hate to think the worst, but I'm worried that this is going to come too late, partly because of the COVID delays, to save many of the pharmacies that are being uh, pursued right now. Um, by the PBMs. They don't say if you broke the contract by uh, you dotted an I wrong. In their book, that's the same as stealing on purpose a million dollars from them. And they could come in with audits and they could wipe out every pharmacy that had anything wrong at all, wipe them all out in the next few months. And then Rutledge case won't matter much. Right. And, they're, you know, they're, the fundamental problem here, again, is um, some common sense. If you bought a car and you had a contract to buy a car and the car showed up and there was a scratch in the bumper, which didn't comply with the terms of your contract, right? You wouldn't want a car with a scratch in the bumper, right? You wouldn't get to keep the car. You wouldn't get to say, hey, I wanted a car without a scratch on the bumper. Um, you breached the contract and I'm keeping the car. That is what's going on in the pharmacy world, and people do not realize it. You have the cancer therapy patient come into your pharmacy. They get the, the $2,000 drug. They walk out the door. They're qualified. The transaction went through. Sometimes they're even pre-qualified, right, through a prior authorization. And they walk out the door with the drug. They use the drug. They ingest the drug. But there's nothing preventing the pharmacy benefit manager from coming back two years later, finding a scratch in the bumper, right, some small issue, right, and not just taking back what you got paid to dispense, but taking back the whole drug cost. And it is completely unacceptable and unthinkable in our society that that is an acceptable business practice. We had something, I talked about this a couple shows ago, but in short, it was we had this foster home next to us with 20 or 30 kids. It was this group home kind of thing. And the nurses wanted to keep the numbers the same for their reasons of keeping track and stuff. So the doctor would call us and we would add a refill instead of putting a new number. We were wrong, but one of the state guys says, how are we going to get our $20,000 back? And I'm like, what do you mean get it back? You've You've used all of this. You know, you can give us a little penalty, but the kids have used all this. Linda, but here's a question, a final question for you. Rutledge was the name of that attorney general, right? Correct. What if your name was something that just did not go well on a bill? I mean, what if your name was something like Mercis? You know, it'd be Mercis versus, you know, or, or some rhyme or... that. That has happened. Um, but yes, it has to be the name of the actual party, um, even if it's funny or silly. I'm not going to be an attorney then. <laughs> but Kelzer doesn't rhyme with many things. All right. Thanks, Linda. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care, Mike. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.